Good morning. You're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Thomas Otter, my co-host, and I'm Dave Kellogg. We're here with our guest this morning, Sandy Lynn, co-founder and CEO of Skilljar. Um, and with Sandy, we'll be talking about how and why product managers make great founder CEOs and what are some of the things they should look out for along the way. Good morning, Sandy. Good morning. Very happy to be here. Awesome. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, why, before we jump into to the meat of this, I'd, I'd love to just ask you to do a quick self-introduction so people can get to know you. Sure. So um, uh, I am the founder of Skilljar, which uh, I'll talk about shortly. But before starting this company, I was a product manager at Amazon.com between 2009 and 2013 and a couple of different teams, B2B and B2C. Um, before that, I got my MBA from Stanford and um, was a civil engineering major from MIT. So did you want to build bridges? My dad was a civil engineer. He worked on like bridges and infrastructure. What, where, was that where you were headed? You know, I actually had a transportation focus, although I did love my um, uh, bridges and uh, infrastructure classes as well. So, but I, and actually my... I worked part-time and then for two years after graduation in a transportation planning company. So really doing like systems level modeling, you know, 20, 50 year population and employment forecasts. And, you know, where do you build, you know, incremental highway capacity and how do you charge, you know, dynamic tolling in various areas and that sort of thing. Cool. Well, just, uh, I, I always felt, not to talk too much about me, but but I, as I got into computers in like kind of the 80s and 90s, my, my dad had got into the interstate highway system in the 1950s, and I felt like both of us managed to catch a wave <laughs> at the right time in our respective careers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad was actually a very early computer science person as well, so we were also the family that was building, you know, computers in the 80s at home. Ah, cool. I did did a little bit of that. Um, could you tell us a bit about Skilljar? Yeah, so we are a customer education platform, which means companies use us to launch online academies for their external constituents, so typically customers, partners in the community. Um, some of our tech customers include Tableau and LinkedIn and DocuSign, and so you know these companies use Skillchart to improve the product adoption and ultimately customer satisfaction, customer retention uh, through learning. Um, we are about 150 people growing very quickly, um, hiring a lot, uh, uh, fully distributed, although historically we are based in Seattle, Washington, where, where I live, um, and we have raised uh, just over $50 million from um, Insight Partners, let our Series B last year, and uh, Mayfield, let our Series A a couple years before that. Super. Yeah, I know Rajiv uh, Batra on your board. Ah, uh, 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 yes. Partner. Yes. Love Rajiv. We talk weekly. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, so the well, before we jump in, so you're working at Amazon in product and then you decide to start a startup. What, what was the story? Like what, what, because you strike me as a passionate person, what kind of triggered you and said, I got to go start this company? What was the founding story, if you will? Yeah. So, you know, my dad actually started his own company back, you know, in the 80s. And it was, 
an IT consulting firm. We, I grew up in D.C., so um, they ultimately did a lot of work for the federal government. And uh, it was a really hard slog for him and his co-founders. But um, I started, kind of always had had that entrepreneurial tech bug in my, in my mind. And, you know, but I graduated uh, from Stanford in 2009, which... Um, you may recall was uh, the global financial meltdown. And <laughs> so I ended up going and I thought I'd, uh, I went to business school with intention of either starting a company or joining a startup right after that. But the the circumstances were such that I decided I would go, you know, to Amazon instead. And, and that was an amazing experience. And I'm actually very, very happy that it worked out that way uh, in the end. It's where I met my co-founder. It's where I learned a lot of skills that are actually very relevant to where SkillJar is today. Maybe not the first, you know, product market fit stage, but it's very relevant today. Um, and uh, and so I was there, you know, at two different teams. I was there about four years. And and my second team, I it was, it was time for me to do something different, right? And I... I'd accomplished, you know, I'd worked in B2B, I'd worked in B2C, I'd been promoted, I'd launched an international business, I'd, you know, grown a team, I had, you know, manager of managers. And so there was a lot that I had felt like I'd accomplished. And, um, and so when I was kind of considering my next opportunity, you know, I looked, I looked internally, of course, and, you know, the company was actually very, very supportive and accommodating for, you know, whatever I might want to do. I looked externally, but I kind of just had this little voice in my head saying, you know, if not, if not now, when, like, if you're actually going to start a company, uh, is there going to be a better time than, than, than now? And I think I was, gosh, so I just turned 40. So 2013, I was like 32 ish, 33. And, uh, I was out of debt. I'd saved enough money from my Amazon stock to go a year without a salary, um, I had no dependence. And so it was just a moment when you look yourself in the mirror and say, am I going to try this or not? And so it was more based, I think, around my personal timing than than anything else, because I do believe that there's always opportunity out there and there's never a perfect time for anyone. If you wait for the perfect team or the perfect idea, you're going to be waiting forever. That's awesome. So, so for you, so first I have to commend you on your LinkedIn. You're the only person I've ever seen on LinkedIn write same job, different title after getting a promotion. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Um, so for you, it was really, I love the if not, if not now, when. Um, and so because oftentimes you, you hear, oh, I saw this opportunity that I had to go after it. It was a terrible time and I quit. You're in some sense the opposite. You said, wow, this is the time, if not now, when, which implies you had to go look for an idea. Is that what happened? And, and how did you find the idea? Yes, um, that is what happened. And uh, and it's funny, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the full story. Uh, so. The I knew nothing about startups, nothing. All, all Steve Blank was very popular at that time, but uh, yeah. that was about all I knew, Steve Blank and Y Combinator. And so, you know, they say you should work on a problem that you really care about. And at the time, the thing I really loved was uh, uh, mobile and social. Again, 2013. And, <laughs> and so... Um, you know, I designed this whole game. It was similar to Words with Friends, except with math. Like, I'm a huge nerd in case you haven't figured that out yet. Um, and 
and then I, and coming from product management background, right, I, I could figure that all out. I could spec it out. And then I decided to look at Zynga's financials, their public company. <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing this business. <laughs> it's completely dependent on Facebook. Um, you know, the financials were not, you know, strong. And I was like, wow, like I don't think I want to do a mobile game anymore. And so, so then, you know, they say that if it's a success that you're going to be doing it for 10 or 15 years and you should do something that you really, really care about. And I also kind of went into this very pragmatically thinking, you know, most of the time founders ideas and product visions change over time, like just very practically speaking. And so I didn't want to fall in love with a specific product idea. So I made a list of different industries that I really cared about. What could I do for the rest of my life and, you know, wake up every day being excited about. And for me, that is learning. Like, like I said already, I'm a huge nerd. I'm the kind of person that reads, you know, three books a week. I was taking a lot of online classes at the time. Um, I could do that forever and, and, and know that, you know, it's just a problem that I really, a problem space that I really love. Now, on the flip side, I also knew that I was never going to sell to any nonprofits and I didn't want to do anything that required, like, I'm also, you know, a greedy capitalist founder and I, for various structural reasons, I didn't want to sell into nonprofits or to schools. So, um, so the first iteration actually of what I was building was kind of like a Yelp for online classes. You know, I was taking a lot of online classes and myself and that product is actually fairly easy to build. Um, and like, for the, for those, uh, any CS people, right. I was, I actually built that first product in Ruby and rails. And so my, my joke is there's a gem for any, anything, right. There's a gem for search. There's a gem for browse. There's a gem for crawling. And so it's a bit of like almost a precursor of today's no code movement. You can actually assemble a product pretty easily in, in, um, Ruby on Rails if it's a pretty simple product like that one. And so, yeah. uh, you know, so I kind of built that. And that was a little bit of a fun, like, you know, product manager, hacker project. Great product managers can typically pack their own things too, I think. Um, but, you know, again, like, you know, I actually met Rand Fishkin from Moz around that time. And, you know, the the SEO business for traffic generation is very, very hard. And it's very dependent on... Um, you know, Google algorithms and, and then Seattle, right. There's actually a lot of very successful lead gen businesses. So there's a place for mom. Um, there's a lot actually in the education space, you know, all-star directories being, being one and kind of just like talking to those CEOs through the startup community. It's, I quickly realized also that, you know, the business model doesn't work unless you have like a very, very high priced item on the other side like a senior home placement or a college uh, online college degree. And, you know, and then you run into the, the ethics of how do you, how do you do the results based on um, kind of what the algorithm says versus who's paying you. And so, you know, net net, I was like, this business is not for me either. <laughs> and, and Sandy, was this kind of while you were still on Amazon on nights and weekends or had you left Amazon and said, I'm going to start a company. Let's do this Yelp for education. Um, and like was Skilljar created as an entity? Where were you in the evolution? 
Oh, I'd already left. I gave okay. myself, I left cold turkey, right? Because I sort of had to manage my exit. I had a team. I wanted to get them through the yep. review cycle. Um, and that actually took a long time. I, I did want to exit very gracefully. And I'm, I'm very glad because, you know, many of my VPs and above are, we're early investors now in the company. And, you know, there are people I still keep in touch with today. So I feel very fortunate that kind of I left on very, you know, satisfactory timelines for everyone involved. But Amazon is an all consuming job, at least at the time, you know, 10 plus years ago. Um, I worked probably as hard at Amazon as I did in the first, you know, four or five years of this company, like so, easily. So just the, uh, the onion story that, uh, did you see this one? Jeff Bezos uh, assures workers that HR is working a hundred hours a week to address their concerns. That <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, so yeah, there's no time for like uh, ideation or, or doing anything else. It's, it's a, it's an all consuming job. So you could, um, you're doing this, um, you're working on this app and basically you pivot quote unquote. It sounds like you decide, no, I don't want to do this. And, and when was skills are next or was there another one in between? There's another one in between. Wow. Um, so, you know, at that point I'd gone into a accelerator called Techstars and, you know, my, my co-founder, Jason, at that point, um, was able to leave Amazon and join me. And so it's in the middle of this accelerator. We, we're like, we're not doing this anymore. And but what are we going to do? And, you know, we're six weeks from demo day. And so we're kind of, you know, stuck in a hard place. And so one of the things we did have out of this was this database of, you know, thousands of instructors that were teaching online. And um, these are typically like, you know, business book authors that want to like have, they wanted to launch a video course online. Um, you know, honestly, people like you, Dave, a little bit. And, uh, and, and so we just did, you know, deep customer discovery with about a hundred of these folks, just like no idea in mind, almost desperation. And one of the things that, you know, kept coming up was they wanted to be able to, you know, deliver their own video courses themselves. And so, um, and, the, and the only way they could do that at the time was like put it on YouTube, which is not exactly what they wanted to do, or kind of try to build a WordPress site and put it five WordPress plugins together. And, you know, n- no normal person is going to do that either. Right. So, so we're like, okay, well, we can do that. And we were super scrappy about validating that concept, like very, very scrappy, which is, is not necessarily the, the um, topic of this podcast, but it's an interesting, you know, evolution. And, uh, and, and that was actually working pretty well for like, you know, a year. And it's interesting, there's been a lot of successful um, companies that came just after us in this space. So, you know, Thinkific, which is one which is in uh, British Columbia, pretty close to us, like Teachable, kind of addressing that so solopreneur, extra small business market, but it was not the right business for us, I think, from a temperament standpoint. And, but it was going okay, right? What they say is like ramen profitable. And, um, and then really around 2015 was the tipping point where we just started getting approached by, you know, a lot of, I call them real companies at the time because, again, my background was Amazon and civil engineering, right? I didn't really understand the difference between little B and big B when it comes to B2B. And, and so, uh, you know, companies like, you know, Spotify and Autodesk and, um, you know, Tableau. And, and then we started 
you know, winning these deals. And, and the common thread here was these companies really needed a video-based, modern, you know, commerce-enabled trading platform for, you know, external consumption, which, you know, their HR internal platforms were entirely unequipped to do for variety of, of product reasons. And we were just the closest thing in the market to it. And so this, you know, group of, you know, five or six people in Seattle, um, you know, barely any product, like angel funded. We just, you know, started seeing this steady stream of, of you know, real enterprise requests and, and winning those. And I look back on that now, I was like, that really shouldn't happen. But so, but it was. And uh, so we're like, we're not going to do this kind of self-service, what's today known as, I guess, PLG anymore. We're going to go to the sales-driven model. And so that's when, um, you know, that's when kind of SkillJar became what it is today. That's awesome. Amazing story. Um, unusual story in my experience. So so, so I loved it. Um, let, me, let me now flip over here. Uh, let me just ask Thomas before we jump into the, to the first of the five questions. Do you have any uh, questions there, Thomas? Hey, I've got a whole load of uh, ed tech, HR tech questions, but <laughs> but I'm going to save those till we, till we get a bit uh, get, get get a bit further along in the show. So, Dave, I don't want to I don't want to ding your flow here, bud. All right, I get so interested in the story of the founder that, that this this is how it takes an hour. Sandy, Sandy was like, "Is this really going to take an hour?" And it's like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even started yet, and we're 20 minutes." Um, so the uh, the first of the five questions uh, that I promised everyone I would ask. Why do you think, uh, having been a product manager and a founder, that product managers make great founders? You know, I I think, and I see it especially now in the enterprise world, that product managers just have a natural focus on solving customer problems, like and really understanding the customer and building a product to fulfill those needs, and ultimately isn't that what business success is about, right? You've got to create long-term revenue and solve real problems. So I think especially in the founder era, that's key to that kind of survival embryonic phase. Uh, I mean, I know probably sales-driven founders can sell and then try to build it later, and that's probably just as valid, but I think product managers just have really natural customer empathy. And I think the, the other thing is product managers can be, you know, Jill of all trades, Jack of all trades, where, you know, I like to say I'm, I'm excellent at nothing, but I'm good enough at everything where, whether it's talking to customers, you know, hacking a little bit on a product, you know, uh, writing out specs, you know, actually QAing and, and getting things, things at the door. Um, PMs are just Swiss army knives that can fill so many holes in the early stage of a company, no matter, you know, what the gap is. And when you have very few people and very few resources being able to, to plug whatever hole may emerge, I think is a, is a real superpower. Um, there were many years where, you know, we, Jason and I were fortunate enough where we had a lot of, uh, kind of burned out Amazon engineers that just wanted to join our startup for, you know, <laughs> minimum wage. And so there's, there's long times when we had, you know, four or five excellent, you know, senior engineers from Amazon and me. And so I was everything else, right? The, the web mistress, you know, marketeer, sales, uh, onboarding, support, like fundraising, not to mention all the back office, payroll, HR stuff. Um, it was all on me. So... 
So what, so to active listen and launch another question, the, the argument is, hey, product managers make great founders because they're, they're great at listening to customers and wanting to solve problems, with which I agree. They're also great because they're Swiss Army knives, so they can do a, typically a broad range of things. Agree. What, what, I don't want to say blind spots because that's our last question, but what, what do you think are some of the liabilities they bring? Like, for example, a friend of mine um, was a sales-oriented founder. He started a company, got to a certain size, and he called me up one day and said, Dave, I never really understood what marketing is, and now I'm running it. It terrifies me. <laughs> you know, hey, I've got the finance, I've got the HR, but, 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 or it might be product for some people. So when you're a product founder, what is, is there a thing that you were afraid of, like, oh, gosh, I've never run that, and I don't have a tool in my Swiss Army knife for that? Oh, a thousand percent, but at least I understand half the business. <laughs> so I, I would say, um, and yeah, I don't want to like short, short change that, you know, question later as well. But yeah. um, I do think uh, I was terrified of sales. And, and now, you know, many years later, I actually realized product management and sales are the same thing in many ways, um, especially in the enterprise. But I, I just had this kind of visceral fear you know, sales as a concept. And um, I mean, I also, I think, under under um, weighted the difficulty and importance of building the go-to-market function. And, and this may be, I mean, everything is situational, but I came from Amazon where essentially the go-to-market was completely established, right? And the saying, I've heard this joke in Seattle where Seattle, in terms of startups, is really good at building product and um, cramming it down existing distribution channels, whether that's Amazon's consumer channel, Microsoft's, you know, B2B channel. Um, And so I think like product oriented founders tend to can kind of obsess about the product a bit too much and underweight the go to market aspects of what it takes to build an early stage business. And then um, similarly, like you know, the success rate on B2B is much higher than B2C for startups. And, you know, my, my guess, and I don't have any data, I'd be interested to, for somebody to do this analysis is that, you know, product founders might lean towards B2C and, uh, and that, you know, has a higher failure rate as well. So what was inherently scary about sales? Cause, uh, cause we, we, that, that was the most interesting thread to pull on in that answer. I love that answer, but, but what was scary about sales? I think the, um, you know, sales from a, you know, consumer standpoint, because we're all consumers, right? It's, it conjures up images. There's, there's kind of two images that conjures up for me. One is the used car salesman and the other is the person that keeps calling you at dinner (laughs) and interrupting (laughs) family time. And there's a, or, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, just like, you know, a, a bit of a, just like a pushy, aggressive, um, that, that was my like completely unfounded. And I would even say completely untrue basis of kind of the sales ethos. And that was just really scary. And then there's also something about just putting yourself out there constantly to be judged and rejected. And, um, I mean, I think that's hard for founders and especially, female founders in general and so like whether that's fundraising or sales but i very quickly learned that uh sales was a lot more fun and rewarding than investors but that's a whole nother story um, and uh 
I, and so, and then I think the, yeah, the cold calling aspects of it, the asking for things constantly, it's, uh, it just was scary. Makes sense. Makes sense. I love uh, sales now though. So <laughs> out of curiosity, what was your views on marketing? Were you afraid of marketing? Not interested somewhere in the middle? Where, where, what was your view at the, in the early days? I didn't really know what marketing was. I kind of was a bit more of a blue pens marketer and, uh, social media thing. And I didn't really understand what it was and for, for, for two reasons. One is, you know, Amazon at the time was not really into marketing. I think like Jeff had said specifically, you know, why would we buy a TV ad when we could give, you know, a million customers more free shipping or something like this is pre Kindle pre, you know, pre all the wonderful things they do with marketing now. And at Stanford, I remember my marketing class, it was when the project was, you know, the kind of CPG packaging for like a roach killer, right? It was very like <laughs> brand, um, CPG, but consumer packaged goods, pricing yeah. oriented type stuff. So I really did not even understand what what marketing was, although HubSpot, which we still use as our marketing automation platform, has a very excellent startups program, which has like a 90% discount. So it was basically free. So we got on HubSpot very, very early, but I didn't. I, but one thing I did do, which was actually excellent because Skillger then and now still gets a lot of great inbound um, leads is I made a commitment to myself to blog once a week. And so those early years of the company, like every week there'd be a blog post that went up. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. One day you can mail me a PDF of your uh, roach packaging. I'd love to see what you came up with. <laughs> um, Do you keep that stuff? Gosh. <laughs> it's probably on a like old laptop in the back of my closet somewhere. <laughs> I still have the first four financial uh, statement integrated spreadsheet I made in class. One day, Thomas. <laughs> I can dig it up for you if you want. That don't was worry, actually, don't worry, Dave, you can keep that. <laughs> Sidetrack, that's an era in which I actually have very little easy access to my own documentation because it was, like, computer-centric but pre-cloud. So I'm like, why do I have no photos from, like, the late 2000s? <laughs> They're, like, on some hard drive somewhere, you know? <laughs> funny, funny. Uh, yeah, that's true, actually. Um, okay, um, next question. Um uh, how has your planning process evolved through kind of three phases from the founder phase early on to let's just call it kind of the early stage startup phase to more of the scale up phase. How has things changed in terms of how you approach product planning and skill jar? Yeah. So I would say in the early days, it was as pretty much a lightweight process as you can get. So we just had a simple Trello board. It was, you know, uh, on deck doing done, um, and we would just do a weekly Kanban where it was just a very rapid iteration and repartization just based on what I was hearing from potential customers that week. And, and actually, that's a great superpower for, for product founders as well is when you're talking to a customer, you have this, you have this like instinctive knowledge of, okay, that's easy. I know we can build that in two weeks. That's hard. That's never going to happen in the time frame that the customer wants, right? And so, um, and so, like, if we, you know, had a customer that we, you know, 
like I remember a customer really wanted a Marketo integration and I kind of looked into it and it's, you know, more or less a JavaScript based, um, you know, very little uh, dev work required because we already built the platform in a way that allowed for, you know, JavaScript based um, tools. So I was like, okay, I know we can do this relatively quickly. And so we just need to, you know, make a few changes and, and, and get it done. So, um, so it was a very like rapid iteration cycle to, you know, meet the needs of the market on a weekly, monthly basis. I would say after crossing, you know, a million-ish ARR, you know, at this point we've got, I don't know, a couple dozen customers, right, that are, are real and live and driving, you know, real usage, then we'd hired our first product manager at that point. And so, um you know, at that point, we started to, you know, get on, I would say, like loose sprints. And uh, this was actually a huge, huge, huge change, like probably the, one of the hardest changes from a culture mindset to, to go through because, um, you know, we had essentially two feature squads. And so how do you actually plan work and, you know, deliver and, and start to make timeline commitments? Cause when you have, when you have customers and, you know, they're pushing the product in certain ways, you sort of have to be able to, you know, give them an expectation of when something's going to be done or not. And, you know, maintain the service and, and scale. And, um, and so, you know, that was a, that was a more difficult, I think, transition, but still relatively, I think, agile. And then, and then now, you know, we've just brought in our first, um, product executive, uh, a couple months ago, which people are like, Whoa, like you guys have been around, you know, I guess six years in market, you just hired, hired your first product leader. Um, and so, you know, our next phase up is like, how do we plan across, you know, we've got three different, um, go to market segments now, like, you know, competing business goals, right? Like, you know, new market versus, you know, something to close a large customer versus retention versus, you know, customer delight versus technical scaling, um, you know, more resource trade-offs. And, and then the communication around that internally and externally gets a lot more complex too. So, um, so this, yeah. So you're, you're about 150 people. You've only recently hired your first a product executive. So it sounds like really for the first, you know, zero to 150 ish people, while you had some PMs, you were, you were the de facto head of PM. Is that a fair statement or no? It's actually, I would say my co-founder more than okay. me. And, okay. um, the, this may be unique to skill jar, but for a long time, it was fairly obvious what to do. And, because we were playing catch up in the enterprise space, right? So there were a few things that made our product really unique, which was the commerce aspect, being video native, and um, our Salesforce app. Uh, but there are a lot of things, especially in the early years, we did not have. For a long time, we did not have any live training capabilities, which is absolutely essential to kind of any you know scaled uh, training program. Um, uh, you know, we didn't have APIs. We didn't like you know, multiple single sign-on protocols, right, security, SOC 2, so uh, localization, um, uh, our back-end tools were always, like, super hacky compared to our learning experience, and so that took a long time to get to, like, a, you know, a real sort of sellable state, so, like, for a long time, especially in enterprise software, it was pretty 
obvious what to do, especially when you're, you know, arguably underfunded and can only take a few big bets every year. And so, so now that we're more about scaling and acceleration, right, the, it becomes like a much more difficult question of like, how do we actually deploy our resources in a way that drives, you know, outcomes for our customers and, and ultimately the business. But my co-founder was the one that actually has been more involved just because for me, like I've had to really focus on go to market and kind of the fundraising and all that stuff. Got it. Yeah. I'd forgotten that you had a co-founder to do that because the question I was going to ask is, would you do it any differently on the theory that there was a high opportunity cost of you de facto running it? But the reality is you had a co-founder who could do that. So, so you weren't excessively drawn into product. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a cost like in hindsight. Well, in hindsight, I wish Skillger had been more distributed and fully remote from day one. But that's easy to say now where <laughs> everybody's yeah. distributed. And so it's not really a fair comparison. But, you know, we've always struggled a lot with like, go-to-market compared to compared to product. And I think part of that has been location. So um, I wish, like, you know, there had been a way or been more, like, normalized to hire uh, to be distributed uh, in the past. So um, would you say you've always struggled with go-to-market and that relates to location? Is this back to the kind of what Seattle's good at versus what Silicon Valley's good at, or is there another dimension there? That That is it. And, um, you know, with my entire, like the one of the most important jobs of the CEO is to build their executive team, like at every stage of the company. And, you know, Seattle, despite, yeah, you know, everybody's like, oh, I didn't know Seattle was so underinvested or like why, why this or that. And, um, you know, the real success stories out of here have largely been, you know, bootstrapped or, or paid by customers to a point where they can raise Bay Area capital and we're the same way. And, um, and because that early stage capital and go to market expertise is just really, really, really hard to get. And so for, for my entire executive team, you know, in the past, like having to hire somebody that was willing to commute or relocate or be in Seattle is just a very, very small pool compared to the talent that's actually out there. Interesting. Wow. Um, the, uh, wow. Okay. So uh, let me reset the room real quickly. Hi, this is Dave Kellogg. You're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with my co-host Thomas Otter and our special guest Stan- Sandy Lynn, uh, co-founder and CEO of Skilljar. Um, the room is being recorded per the red ball in the room title. And uh, <clears throat> while we don't often get any, everyone in the room is free to ask questions. So if you are interested, just raise your hand and we'll get to you uh, when we think it's an appropriate time. So Dave, uh, I'm going to derail things for a quick second and ask a, ask a question if I may. So Sandy, one of the things that Dave and I, you spend quite a lot of time talking about is the ideal customer, you know, this idea of you know, when you're building a product, um, it, it's pretty hard to build it if you don't have an idea who you're building it for. And uh, because otherwise you end up promising things to a whole bunch of people and you end up, you end up you know, building something that's not very clear. When you were building, when you were starting out, did you, have a, did you kind of have an ideal customer profile in mind? And, and how, do you think about, you know, how do you think about the concept of an ideal customer in, in, in your work? Yeah, so you know, as it relates to Skilljar, right, we had that kind of inbound flow from, you know, real companies. And, and one of the people that was most instrumental in shaping um, what Skilljar is today is a woman named Suzanne Ferry, who um, 
was the VP of Education at a company called Matt Barr. She was formerly leading education at Marketo, um, still a customer after acquisition by, by HP. And she saw Skilljar. Matt Barr was in a very difficult learning situation for various reasons, and she got it immediately and, you know, really spent a lot of time educating me on sort of the market and the gaps. And, you know, there's a few other people like her, like Dean Onishi at Procore is another one that, you know, became a customer in 2015, still a customer today that, you know, the, the nice thing about enterprise is when you have your first, you know, 10, 20 customers, you really get to know them and they become huge advocates. Um, Mike Zinni, who was at Zendesk and um, is now at uh, Outreach, also a two-time Skilljar customer, was very instrumental in kind of shaping my views um, on the market. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more more people that I'm, I'm forgetting right now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important to find those. Um, and I, I think it's a mistake that some PMs make is they think it's the company. You know, this is the ideal company, but it's actually it's the it's the person so often that 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 has the has the belief in you when you sometimes when you don't have the belief in yourself yet, they have a belief in your in your ideas and the vision, and then and you really you really can learn from those people. So when you find yeah. those, you know, it's really important that you treasure them and that that, that and that you. Uh, I always joke, half joke to my PMs that you, you should have at least at least two customers where you know the names of their kids. Yeah. <laughs> or their cats in my case <laughs> their cats, yeah yeah i i feel uh, or in dean's case his dogs but um i do feel uh very 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 fortunate because um there's not that many personas in the enterprise that had nothing and were on the upswing in um you know, in terms of their prominence. And so this education leader in the services and success organization is one of them where, you know, education and success were, you know, back in, you know, 2015, it was still this kind of like somewhat foreign concept, right? Gainsight was just getting under underway and like this customer success thing. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and then the, the existing tool set, which, you know, Thomas, you know, quite well was just not designed for this at all. Right. And so we just happened, we had a product that was close enough for the SMBs that kind of hit upon this, this nerve that, um, uh, a lot of these very like great, uh, education leaders were like, we, we need this. So we're going to help kind of shape your, your vision around it. And I'll, I'll give one example. Right. So in, in external training, uh, you know, many uh, companies sell this, whether that's through direct sales or through um, online. And so revenue recognition is an important thing. And so for most traditional learning products, right, when they mark attendance, they actually mark it based on completion. Because if you're like, you know, completing a normal college class or even an HR required, you know, harassment training or whatnot. It doesn't count until you're done. But, you know, Suzanne was like, actually, this is like for RevRec, like we actually just need to know whether somebody attended. Like, yes, I want to know how far somebody got through the content because like from a learning standpoint, from a business standpoint, I actually want them to be, you know, counted as there if they show up for like five seconds, right? Because of the rev rec things. And so, um, so those are like the many small, what, just one example of like how those early customers shaped our product to be really uniquely suited for the use case that we have today. So I'm, I'm going to, I've got a lot of product questions for you, but we'll do that. We'll Sandy, we'll try and find <laughs> those in the end, or maybe we'll catch up, we'll catch them another day, but I don't want to, I don't want to hijack that anymore, but Sandy and I can go down deep deep uh, uh, learn tech learn tech hole here so Dave so back to you 
the educational tech bonding session can begin at nine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Simon, we have an audience question. Simon, great to have you here again. And uh, what's your question? Yeah, hi. Uh, this is Simon. I'm uh, in South Africa. Um, Sandy, earlier on, you were you talked about the fact that you did the blog for um, for Skilljar, and I was looking up and I see that there's kind of almost one every day these days. Um, so my question is, my questions are: first of all, you know, do you, is it the who should be responsible for that? Is it product management who should be responsible for that? And second of all, how important actually is it to do you think, do you think blogs are? And yeah, by the okay. way, do we, uh, Thomas will know I have a, I have a vested interest in asking this question. So if I understand the question, it's who should be responsible for blogging and how important is it? So I'll kind of separate this by stage of company. So, you know, in the startup phase, like it's kind of weird because I, I – Felt like whatever deficiencies I had in marketing, for some reason I got it in my head that they would all be solved if I at least blogged every week. <laughs> so, um, and the blogs at that time, I mean, if you rewind, like, I mean, it may even go back to 2013, depend, like depending on whether somebody was kind enough to remove them from our blog yet. But the uh, they were very product oriented because I the way I thought about it was okay, what's just one question I'm hearing from our customers this week, and I'm just going to blog about it. Or like, I'm just going to blog about this new feature because I came at it from a very product standpoint. But, you know, I think I just I had it in my head and I don't even know whether it's true that, you know, to, you know, show up properly in Google, you needed to have a regular, you need to create content and like blog regularly. So maybe I just, you know, was influenced by HubSpot and and what was going on at the time. Um, I mean, these days, you know, we have um, a marketing team and um, we've got, you know, a content marketer and, you know, a couple of interns. And so um, especially we are having our conference in about two months. And so we have a steady stream of content um, uh, that's kind of being deployed because of that. I think for Skilljar, it's important because we serve, you know, educators. And so they really like our content. And anecdotally, um, we haven't done a lot of performance-based um, analysis, or maybe Michael has, but it hasn't been a core focus of yet of what um, we've been doing. But, you know, part of our mission and part of who we serve is uh, best practices and content. And um, we have a unique vantage point having, you know, hundreds of deployments in external education. So uh, it's it's quite important to me. And I would also say coming from an Amazon background, I which has a very strong writing culture, which I'm very aligned with, I, I like things to be documented and put on the web so that they can be reused. Awesome. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Simon, for that question. Um, I got 15 minutes and three more to hit. So I'm going to uh, defer a follow-up, Simon, if you have them. We'll leave you up here on the stage, but let me let me plow through two of these before we open it back up. Sandy, uh, question number three. Uh, as a CEO of the product background, how do you interact with your product team now? Um, it must be hard to pull back. If we had your product executive, what, 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 what might they say? <laughs> uh, what's it been like? Yeah, you know, if anything, I think that, you know, when you're on our, our new product executive, he joined in July. So it's, you know, we're less than three months in. Um, I had actually been pulled back too much. And like, 
which is not a good thing. Um, I, you know, had to be uh, really focused on go to market and recruiting and fundraising and all those things. And so, like, I knew roughly what the product team was working on, but I was not involved in like scoping in sort of the artifacts, like whatsoever. And, um, and actually I do need to be and just start like aligning the go to market with the product. Right. So, um, I see my role as just making sure the business priorities are clear, but really neuron should be owning the kind of product strategy and execution beneath that. And, um, it actually hasn't been hard for me to pull away just because there's other areas of the business that need my, my intention much more. Now, the interesting thing is like, I kind of like we, he and I also joke that like, he can't really pull a fast one on me because normal, normal, um, things that product leaders or product managers do to get their thing like prioritized. It's like, I know all the tricks, right? So, <laughs> so, um, because there, there is no right answer. There's an art and a science to product management. It's a portfolio, um, strategy, like at the, at the company level. And so it's hard at any one feature to say whether this is important or not. And that's actually not from a company standpoint, it's, it's this collection of things going to, accomplish our goals. So, um, I also find that I don't have to spend much time on it cause I can tell with very little effort, like whether the function is, um, how it's doing. Right. Because, uh, unlike things like, you know, marketing or sales that are not my domain expertise, you know, I really have to dig deep and sometimes even then I don't understand and, and really have to rely on my, my management team to, you know, to deliver what they say they're going to. When you made the hire, how much of the process was about, you do know you're working for a product oriented founder. Uh, Like, was that, did you, was that something you put on the table during the process or was that something you kind of just left silent and you figured they'd figured out? Uh, I talked about it with different candidates, but I think it was more from, I focus a lot now when, when hiring my team about how their expectations of how they interact with the CEO. Um, because I found that that is a very key. It's one of the most important things. How, how do they like to influence and be influenced and what are their expectations of me as their quote unquote boss. And <laughs> there's a problem if they ex- actually expect me to be their boss. Like, so actually one of the, one of the worst failings of, I think product managers as founders is that I'm very, very bad at being directive. Like product managers cannot tell engineers what to do. They can't tell support what to do. They certainly can't tell like legal or tax what to do. Right. So it's a very kind of high context, high communication, not consensus, but like, you know, full transparency type of leadership style, which is my kind of natural inclination. And so um, with all my executives, but especially in more like high task oriented functions, it is very, very difficult for me to be directive and to be um, kind of employ what might be like a more say, I don't know, actually, I'm not going to like judge any other functions, but to be a very detailed, like task oriented CEO. And so that is something which I, you know, really try to vet out with, um, you know, not just my product leader, but all of my leaders about like, what's, you know, how do they, you know, interact with, um, 
their kind of CEO and leadership today, and especially for people that have not reported to a CEO for the first time, because I've just kind of found over and over that that's a difficult transition, especially with my with my style, which is extremely hands off. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting point, right? Because PM is is all about collaboration, influence, kind of kind of getting people to do what you want because they want to do it, um, and, and that is not the way the entire company runs. I once did a blog post called. I think it was something like sales is from Mars, engineering is from Venus, um, <laughs> in, in, in that like like engineering wants to be reasoned with. Sales, actually, in my opinion, wants to be told what to do, and, and you can frustrate them by reasoning with them. Like they just like yes. take this hill. Um, so, so it is interesting. So it must have been interesting for you to try and run sales because if they're waiting for you to say take this hill and you're trying to explain something. You know, they're sitting there going confused, like, why is she explaining this to me? <laughs> and uh, They're not confused. It's an opportunity for negotiation is what oh, I found. That's and a good point. It's, I am the world's worst sales manager. I'm actually a pretty good salesperson, but I think I'm a pretty poor sales manager, and, and this is just one of the reasons, reasons why. It's just a very different um, management uh and I know we're speaking in generalizations, but um, yeah, so it's been very, very hard, like to, you know, manage sales teams and sales leaders over the years. But um, I think we're at a scale now, fortunately, and I, and I love our, our chief revenue officer, Kathy Lord. Um, uh, so interestingly, managing product managers is also very similar, I think, to managing executives in some ways once you're at scale. <laughs> like people are fairly independent you know, high degree of ownership, high degree of execute, but kind of during the startup period, it was definitely difficult. Interesting. Super interesting. Uh, I just tweeted that blog post for anyone interested. Um, okay, number four here. You used to work at Amazon, which I'm told, as we discussed earlier, is a pretty hard place to work. Um, what are the key similarities and differences in PM from a large company, or particularly Amazon, uh, to a startup? Yeah, I think... Yes, the similarity side, you know, Amazon is a PMs are the GMs. And at the time, you know, 10 years ago, they would only hire post MBAs. Um, And maybe this is similar to like consumer PLG type companies today, but your product manager is responsible for growth and responsible for the performance of a business. And so um, the, you know, similarities, you know, super high accountability, super high ownership, you know, buck stops here. a lot of customer focus, you know, Amazon, of course, was highly data, I would just say data informed because they were not data driven, but highly data informed. And then, you know, stakeholder management, we touched on this, you know, just now where, you know, product management, especially at a big company is about kind of herding the cats, um, especially when you have any major initiative, you've got to not only coordinate amongst the, you know, five feature squads in your team, but the other 10 <laughs> feature squads and other teams that you need work to and, you know, influence them. So, um, you know, differences, you know, I feel like every year my ability to write a coherent six pager has disintegrates like more and more. <laughs> and I see this every year around now because we start to kick off annual planning and I look at all my previous documents and I just see the like <laughs> the slow slide into like the nonsense that comes out of my fingertips today. I look at my Amazon documents and I'm like, wow, I used to be smart. Um, but actually, no, I used to be really good at like 
you know, structure and internal communication. And that the return on that in a startup is just much less versus getting results, right? And so, um, and then there's just much less like negotiation and like I used to remember like having to stack like how do I get to these four sprint plannings like on, within the same two hours to make sure my like two points here my five points here all get done um, so that you know complexity you know doesn't exist yet here thankfully though I'm sure it's coming um, and yeah we can just be a lot more agile because the cycles are faster and uh, and there's fewer dependencies. Cool, Thomas. Been a while. Get the. Uh... Yeah, you know, I think I'm, the, the one thing I'm kind of curious to go, go back to is um, a little bit back towards the edtech, uh, HR tech space. I think, you know, what's really super and interesting about, about your business is you, you found an underserved niche that, you know, at first sight seemed served, you know. Um, it's, you know, how did you, you know, when you go back to thinking about that, what would you do, you know, would somebody else who was like thinking about a startup you know, how do you th- how do you think about finding that niche? Oh, that's such a big question, Thomas. Because I feel like I got really lucky, um, but in hindsight, right? Like, I think to be a really successful um, business, and I mean like a venture scale unicorn, decacorn, uh, you've got to be the everything to somebody, and so. I would like if I were starting a new enterprise business, I would probably list out all the different personas in the enterprise and and figure out like who is massively underserved and why, and then what are the structural reasons like. Um, and and I would particularly look in non sales and marketing because I feel like those uh, those parts have been highly invested in, and there's also like you know arguably a a you know, winner already, like marketing automation platforms are in, you know, Salesforce or your CRM of choice are in, although there's plenty of, you know, startups attacking that space and various reasons, but like, you know, who's, who's serving the, you know, like the dev, well, there's plenty of people serving DevOps, but I, what I probably do is go through the, <laughs> go through the different personas and see who's on the upswing and, and who's massively underserved and, and why. Um, and I, I do think, especially for product people, like the more you can actually understand the problem emotionally and viscerally, the better, like one of the challenges for me and why we had such a slow start is because this is not a problem that I understood at all. Um, and it took, a while to get there. Like when I first heard, I was at, I think the second Gainsight Pulse conference ever. And um, when I first heard the concept of customer success, I was like, I, I don't get this. Like, why is this a thing? Like, because you turn out of Amazon every time you, you know, leave your browser, you turn out of Nordstrom every time you walk out the door. Like, of course, customers matter when it comes to consumer or small businesses. And so this, this idea of there having to be like a movement to, promote customer success in the enterprise like in some ways I've still a little bit like smack my head and don't really get it but um and so that learning curve for me was pretty steep um for sure cool thanks I I actually think we covered most of question five in the other questions but is there anything we missed there Sandy on the, the blind spots um that you'd have as a CEO coming from a product management background yeah. Well, I think especially now, having been out of the discipline for a long time, like I, I fully recognize that I am not a modern product management person, right? And so 
for example, right, we actually just made our hire for director of product operations. And like, that is not a function that even existed um, when I was in product management, or maybe it did, but it was not like a thing. And so that concept of what is this, what this person is and what this role is, which is, you know, a fairly common one in product orgs these days, it's just not something I had real intuition on. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but I, I fully recognize that I'm not the modern product marketer today and and neither should I be. But it is a it is a blind spot, I think, for any CEO to feel like they're too knowledgeable about any given area because, you know, times change. Yeah, I was a marketing background in CEO and I've been out of it at some point for over 15 years. And I can tell you, you know, if there's a discipline that's changed, I mean, a lot of things have changed, but marketing has changed dramatically mm-hmm. uh, between, you know, 2004 when I stopped being a CMO uh, full time to, to today. So it's, it's important to try to stay current as best you can and also just be aware <laughs> uh, that these things have really moved greatly out from underneath you. Um, well, we're coming up here on time. I don't know if Simon, if you had a follow up question, you're still up here if you do. That one's still on mute, so I'm just up. Oh, go ahead. You got one? No, no. I was just going to say it's uh, it's interesting to hear someone talking about B2B um, because here in Africa, we're not very strong on B2B. Um, it's much more B2C, and I think the um, product management in B2C and the kind of pro- the kind of stuff we, the, the, the startups are coming out here is very different. Uh, it's much more of a kind of a customer focus um, area. But, yeah, no, that was my comment. Thanks. Yeah, actually, that's a. I have a, just a, maybe a closing thought out too. I thought a lot about B two C versus B two B product management. Having done, I'm a consumer. I've done small business, and now I'm doing enterprise, right? And and my relationship to my customer is so different. Like the the B two C world is very. I call it like being a godlike view of being the product manager. You you are thinking about the customer experience, but it's a bit of the law of averages and the and. And like, I'm, I'm God, so I'm going to design this product experience for you, right? And then, but I think with enterprise, it's very different because you've really got to understand the business problems and then your sample set is much smaller, but also every customer's is like more important in that sense. And you're, you're, you're not God anymore, although you still kind of have to be across the entire customer base, but it's a very different customer relationship. Um, uh, and I think uh, in some ways a more authentic one too in B2B. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for that question, Simon. Thanks for your answer, Sandy. Did you have any closing thoughts, Sandy, before we wrap up? No, this is so fun. Um, and thank you very much for having me on the show. Sandy, it was awesome having you on the show. And we will we will talk HR Tech and Ed Tech another day. I look forward to it. Dave, Sounds I great, should, Thomas. I should uh, close things out with our usual, um, yes. usual round of applause. Yay. Thanks so much, 